0: Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. So glad to have you along for this always exciting ride. And we're going to start today's show with Randy Propster. I actually met him at the Floyd Festival where I was last weekend to see my daughter perform. He took me on the most amazing hike. He works for Backpacker Magazine. He is the brand ambassador as well as an events coordinator, and welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Randy.
1: It is wonderful to be here. It was so wonderful going on that hike with you and spending some uh, time in the, the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. What a beautiful place, right?
0: It was really spectacular. From where we were, way up in the mountains, you could see why they got their name, because everything was tinged, this gorgeous blue. Uh, it, it, it was just idyllic. And I wanted to have you on because I think a lot of people who used to be devoted urbanites have gotten into nature in the last year. And that's good news, but could be bad news, too, because a lot of these folks don't know what they're doing out in nature. Is that is that fair to say?
1: you know we're we're we are seeing that you know as much as for me I have have encouraged my entire backpacker career so I've been with Backpacker magazine for 15 years now and that wow. entire ride for me has been devoted to inspiring and informing Folks, with the hope that they would want to spend more time outdoors. I actually have run a program we call our Get Out More program. So mm-hmm. you would think that I'd be ecstatic with this idea that more people than ever really are getting outside. And we see that because there are hardly any parking spots left at trailheads. And, you know, there's just this mass, you know, connection now to, to nature. As much as we were forced to disconnect with the way the world. Uh, you know, forced us all into our own little corner, so to speak. We all recognized how important it was to, to connect to the outdoors and, and people are doing that. But but if they're not doing it in the right ways, they can not only put themselves in danger, but they could put nature in danger. And and we want to do everything we can to, to prevent that. And it starts with making sure that there's that level of information and, and knowledge and prerequisite planning and preparing that it really just is, is a must to safely and, and successfully navigate being in the outdoors.
0: Yeah. Well, on your hike, I not only saw some beautiful things, I also learned a lot. And you taught me something I never knew before. If you're on a trail and there's a puddle in front of you, you're supposed to walk right through that puddle. I was so surprised to learn that. Why is that?
1: You know, the, the, the concepts that I really try to direct everyone to, you know, encourage everyone to, to think about is how do we minimize our impact and right. believe it or not, you know, a, a puddle in the middle of a trail, as much as you say, man, if I walk through that mud puddle, I'm just going to make a mess and I'm going to get a little muddy and, uh, you know, and maybe even cause more damage to the trail, but believe it or not hopefully we prepared before we got out there and put on some shoes that can handle the mud, right? Let's get a little dirty. Why not? It's part of the fun and it can be if you think of it that way. But if, if every one of us starts to walk around that puddle, and then we wear out the, the durable surfaces on the edges of that puddle. Then the puddle grows, and then the folks mm-hmm. that come behind us do the same thing, and the puddle grows again. And then it gets to the point where now that that puddle is is going to cause that trail to erode in ways that it wasn't designed to do. And somebody's going to have to come behind us and recreate that section of trail or divert that section of trail. And that takes time and energy and resources and very important resources, including financial resources away right. from our, our park service. That, and that money could go to so many different, more useful Projects. If everyone just thought in that way, so you know, how do I minimize that impact? And believe it or not, to minimize that trail impact, you walk right through that mud mud. (laughs) puddle.
2: Well,
0: it seems simple now that you've explained it, but it never would have occurred to me. What do you think are some other rookie mistakes that those of us who don't get into nature as much as we should are, are making right now?
1: Yeah, you know, the most prominent is really just the. The idea that you can just go, and and in every trip you take, some planning and preparing. That idea of plan ahead and prepare. You know, no, have a have a plan in place that helps you learn a little bit about where you're going before you get there. What are some things you might need to help you be successful while you're there? At the at the least, what are some things that that would allow you to positively respond if some? Let's say there was an accident or an emergency, right? I mean, if you're a mile away from the car, and uh, next thing you know, there's some type of cut or or an ankle sprain or something mm, that could just right. go wrong. You know, you could put yourself in a really difficult situation, and a lot of that could be avoided with some planning, some preparing, bringing the right equipment with you and just having some prerequisite knowledge of the place that you're going into. And, you know, in addition to that, I, I think uh, just the idea of of learning how to minimize an impact um, and, and having that mindset of making sure that you are disposing of your waste properly, um, right. making sure that you are staying on, on trail or if you have to step off trail, you know, find a, a durable surface, find a rock to step off on so that the folks coming towards you can pass by uh, without just trampling all of that very fragile vegetation it's amazing how long some of the vegetation takes to be to live in the environment that it lives in uh, and yeah. just one footprint later can can really reverse that and so we you know we want to encourage folks to be on durable surfaces uh, I, I'd say don't you know, leave it, how you found it is a big one too. It's amazing. You get into some places and there can be some pretty cool, what looks like and feels like art almost out there on trail where people kind of build rock cairns and things right, like that. Right. Sure. And it is, it can be fun, but you know what, if, if you want to do that, then I would say at the very least, you know, put it back the way you found it before you left so that when the next person gets there, it, it's in its original form. And so we right. can all appreciate it from how it started. And, and
0: Back to, it, yeah, back to safety. How much can people rely on their cell phones when they're out in nature?
1: Communication is a, a really big void in not only in the fact that you sometimes are lacking in service and knowing hmm, sure. the area you're going into, you may say, you know what, it's, there's cell towers within miles, but then you Get down on the right side of the right hill in the right little gorge, or down by the water, and that self-service is gone. And so, uh, you know, ha- knowing that um, communication, which I believe is the eleventh essential, so there are a lot of lists out there. You can uh, folks on it that are listening, if they ever uh, have uh, spent time in the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, or you know, you can Google this stuff. These. St- Idea of you know ten essentials is is a pretty popular list that people would use to as a guide for items to gather as they prepare. And the one piece of that puzzle that's oftentimes missing from those lists is communication. And and I call that the eleventh essential. And for me, communication is not only yeah have a cell phone with you because you may have service, and it could be as easy as making a phone call and saying hey I need some help. Uh, But if you don't have service, then make sure before you Get out there on, on trails. So you've communicated to someone where you're going, sure. when yeah, you're going, yeah, yeah. when you plan on coming back. Uh, bring a, an emergency whistle with you. Maybe a small mirror can be fantastic as a way to uh, reflect some light towards Uh, somebody that might be at a higher point on the terrain or even a plane going by learning some of the skills that that come along with some of your other equipment knowing that a strobe light uh, a flashing light in the in the backcountry can be seen as a sign a a signal and even a fire but i tell people all the time uh, that equipment is only half the battle because uh, uh if you build one big smoky flame filled fire and a plane goes overhead, they're going to look down. They're going to be jealous that you're having a great time around a cool campfire.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. (laughs) Whereas Uh, if I,
1: you know, if I build three smaller fires in a, in an equilateral triangle, that same pilot has been trained to see that as an SOS. So it can be that simple. The difference between Mm. help and not help could be just having that skill to complement the gear and, and know the right way to use the gear.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when we were hiking, you told us some fascinating stories about your mm, interactions with bears over the years. How common is that issue or does it really depend on where you are?
1: Where you are significantly plays into it. And again, that's part of that know before you go. You know, if you, if you know you're going into that area that we were in, believe it or not, some areas of the Blue Ridge in, in Virginia have a very active black bear populations, and just south of there, the Great Smoky Mountains in North Carolina, it, it is a place that you go no pretty much counting on ha- seeing a bear. You're hoping wow. to see a bear a lot of times, huh. and it's just there's dense enough populations in those areas that stay active enough that you are likely to to see one. And you know, if you could get a chance to see one from a distance in a safe manner and not interfere with them in any way again another of the of the rules of the road or if you will or the rules of the trail that i like to remind folks of is respect wildlife you know you're a guest in their home and we should always think of it that way so you know be observed from a distance and back away when if you feel like you're encroaching and do everything you can to keep those the wildlife as wild as possible but yeah you do have some fun encounters i've had some great encounters in the in the, on the east coast in the in north carolina and in, in pennsylvania i've seen some uh, bears a little closer than i might have wanted to see them in montana and <laughs> where they where <laughs> what, they grow them big <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs>
0: uh, what happened in montana
1: well, it, you know, that was just a, a matter of, uh, I knew I was in heavy bear territory and I love the Bob Marshall Wilderness. It's a fantastic uh, wilderness area, the fifth largest wilderness area in the United States. It, basically runs all the way up to the southern border of glacier national park which creates a a marvelous you know backpacking heaven in in my eyes just because i am just so uh, much enjoy the remote nature of backpacking and feeling like you Mm. really do take a step down on the food chain but you also have to be really aware and and you come around the wrong corner at the wrong time and and you can put yourself in danger really quickly and so fortunately for me it de-escalated very quickly but uh, you know a, a, a very large bear. And, and I made made eye contact at a point where we both knew we were there. And wow. uh, that's a, that can be a little unsettling. <laughs> Did you
0: yell? Did you make yourself as big as possible? Did you play dead? I mean, what's the best scenario or does it depend on the type of bear?
1: It does. It it depends on the type of bear and and the interaction. And sometimes it's really challenging to make those decisions in real time. I'll be honest, one of the most intense encounters I had was actually in the Pennsylvania wilds. And black bear literally fell out of a tree. A tree branch could not hold his weight. And he fell and landed within arm's reach of me. (laughs) And at, at that moment, it was just shock for, not only for myself, but the bear was equally shocked for having fallen out of a tree. But fortunately it immediately darted away. But if you do come upon a, a, a bear and I've had a mother bear, uh, you know, wag her head at me and slap the ground. I Ooh. just knew that, that, you know, she had cubs with her and those yeah. situations can go bad really quickly. So in that case, it's, it's be big. It's don't turn and run. It's slowly back away. It's talk, mm calmly, but but be, be, make sure they're aware that you're not a, a, in a non-aggressive state and that you're de-escalating the situation with every opportunity that you can. If, if it escalates because of timing and, and next thing you know, you find yourself in a battle. Um, that is where everything changes. And depending upon the type of bear, sometimes it's appropriate to to try to defend yourself, sometimes you need to just completely uh, uh, play dead, like you said. Wow. So, you know, again, knowing as much as you can about those animals before you get there will really give you the comfort of not having to that that worry. The, the I'm more afraid of the unknown than I am mm-hmm. of the actual encounters.
0: Sure. But how would you defend yourself against a bear?
1: Well, and again, if you, you know, if, if there's a black bear that for whatever reason just seems to want to battle with you. Um, It may require using everything from your trekking poles to throwing uh, any rocks or large sticks that you can, Uh, you know, there's no such thing as a fair fight, you know, poke them in the eyes, kick Mm. them, kick them in places where you wouldn't want to be kicked. Um, You know, you're really at uh, some level with some encounters, it is a fight for, uh, for, for life. So uh, you do everything that it takes.
0: Wow. Well, thank you so much for those inspiring words, Randy. It was a delight
1: speaking with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for putting on a wonderful podcast. And I hope all of your listeners will, you know, get out more. That's what it's all about.
0: Our next guest is Katrina Davies, who embodies the spirit of adventure, as you will see. Welcome to the Fromber Travel Show, Katrina. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I read an article you wrote in the Guardian newspaper, and it said at the bottom you have a book called Fearless.
3: Was the article that you wrote uh, an excerpt from the book or based on the book? It was based on the book. Yeah, it was kind of, I'd taken a section from the book and then gone a bit deeper into it. All right. Well, let's let's give the premise of the
0: book then. What, what did the book deal with?
3: So when I was younger, um, I busked from England, from Cornwall in England, up to the very north of Norway to see the midnight sun. And then I busked from there to the very southwest of Portugal. And wow. I was living in an old van and I was playing my cello on the street.
0: And so uh, that's, so you, you mean, so, you know, sometimes it can be hard on, on podcast. So she didn't bus, she didn't take the bus. <laughs> you made your living by playing your cello. That's now right. that, I think that would have surprised anyone who knew you, because as you say in the article, you had stopped playing cello because you didn't enjoy playing it in front of other people. Is
3: that, is that fair to say? That's definitely fair to say. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a departure for me. It wasn't something I, I was particularly comfortable doing, certainly at first.
0: So fearless, obviously. So, so what made
3: you decide to undertake this adventure? Well, two things happened. One is that a relationship ended and I was really upset about that, really brokenhearted hmm. and felt very kind of lack of self-esteem, that kind of thing. I, I suppose I felt the need to prove myself to myself. And then somebody I knew, I'd known for a long time, suddenly died in a car accident. And it, it had been his oh. idea to go busking, not necessarily wow. that particular trip. But, and um, something about him dying like that, and I was in my early 20s, kind of took away a lot of fear, which sounds strange, but that's how it was for me. I, I was suddenly more, I had. I was less fearful than I normally would be. Right. Was it the fact that you saw that
0: life could end at any moment and you thought might as well try this or or was it less uh, concrete than that?
3: Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, I can I can understand that statement now and and yet now I feel all the old anxiety, but it was more (laughs) visceral. It was more a kind of I don't know. I don't fully understand. It was it was just that I wasn't scared for about a year. I just wasn't scared, maybe because dying didn't seem so scary. And that's the root of all the fear. Yeah, absolutely. He'd kind of done it. So I was like, oh, well, maybe it's okay." (laughs) Right. So a cello
0: is a very, very heavy instrument to uh, carry around. How did you decide to get from place to place as you were doing this?
3: Well, I bought an old Iveco van, just like an old beaten up second hand Van that was on the side of the road near where I live, hmm. and then I a friend helped me kind of build a bed in it, essentially in a cupboard and a and a sort of surface for a cooker, and that was wow. what I did. Yeah, no, and I mean, you know, now it was a very cheap van, and it wasn't. It could have gone so wrong, right? Because um, I'm not exactly good at mechanics, but you know, somehow it it did the it did did the journey and. Well, let's, <laughs> let's go into some
0: of the details of the journey. I mean, because okay. uh, most of our listeners are Americans, so they probably don't know European geography as, as well yeah. as you do. Enough, yeah. So where did you start? Where did you go? How many miles were in between? And, and what were some of the challenges?
3: So the whole journey, I think I drove 20,000 miles. Wow. And um, but that was because I zigzagged a bit, you know. But so I, I started in the southwest of England, which is called Landsend, which is where I live. And then I drove to the north of England. And at that time, you could get a ferry from Newcastle to Bergen in Norway, which is quite a yeah. long journey. It's probably, I can't remember how long it was, but it's at least 24 hours. Wow. And Bergen, I don't know if anyone knows about Norway, but that's kind of in the relatively south. I mean, Norway's one of those very long, thin countries like Chile. Right. So, so it kind of has, it's, yeah, it's sort of very, it takes, you know, most people I met in Norway had never been to the north of Norway, that kind of thing. And ah. um, <laughs> so then I traveled kind of around the south of Norway because I decided I didn't want to go north because I was too, it was too much. And then, mm. you know, it's a lot, cut a long story short, I ended up going back to my original plan, which is that I wanted to go to the Arctic Circle and right to the north of Norway, which is actually the most northerly point on mainland Europe. Wow. And look at the midnight sun, which is the term for the when you get to see the sun not setting, basically. So it's right. obviously light 24 hours a day above the Arctic Circle for a certain amount of time in the summer. And then after a certain point north, which changes as the summer progresses, obviously, you can actually watch the sun not setting, which is quite a strange Experience. What does it look like? <laughs> it just kind of just dances around ha- the horizon and then starts rising again. Wow! So, yeah, I've actually never been
0: that far north. I've I've been a, I've been to Scandinavia in summer where it has set, you know, maybe in the early mornings hours of the morning, yeah. and then risen again very soon after that. But I don't think I've ever seen it dance on the horizon. That sounds yeah, I mean, marvelous. And
3: it was amazing because obviously, I was on my own in my van and. This was the beginning of my trip, which then ended up lasting a whole year. But um, that part of the trip, as I went north and it was light all the time, I think that really helped because obviously I was sleeping on my own in very remote places in the north of Norway. Were your family and friends worried for you? I don't think so. I mean, this is going back <laughs> a bit and there weren't any... It was, It was not something you could do now because I didn't have... There weren't any smartphones and there wasn't wow. really any social media there wasn't any social media at that time. Yeah. I mean, I think MySpace was invented while I was away and mm-hmm. I literally had no access to news. So it was actually the summer that Hurricane Katrina was happening. Oh, and I okay. didn't know until I came back south. Wow. Which <laughs> now, you know, you can't imagine that level of, of kind of, you know, isolation. It yeah. sounds wonderful. Well, it, it sounds it? great. Yeah. To time, be so it, disconnected. It just felt normal. And now yeah. it seems like such a what an incredible experience to have, to just be able to, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And it obviously would be very different now, I think. When I've
0: traveled across Europe and, and across the United States too, You see buskers, people out on the streets playing music or doing magic or doing comedy or whatever their skill is to make money. And I've always wondered about the lifestyle. So in terms of the nitty gritty of it, how much could you make playing your cello? Was it enough? Because Scandinavia is expensive.
3: Well, it was enough because I had my van. So all I had to really buy was diesel and food. Hmm. And yeah, it was enough. Like there were days obviously where... I had bad days and I didn't make very much. And, um, that was depressing, but, you know, it wasn't like I had any particular schedule. So I was, I was able to just wait. I mean, there were definitely stressful aspects, but more to do with peep other buskers. So it can ah. get, it can get quite political as you can probably imagine, you know, if there's a good spot, right? everyone wants it because there's a lot to do with noise and amplification sure. and all of that. Like, you know, Were you competing with the
0: other buskers? Did they have spots? Were they like permanent fixtures and you would just come into town and upset people?
3: Well, it changed and and every country had different rules as well. Um, Mm. And so, you know, Germany is very organized. And, you know, you had like your own little shift for 20 minutes in the middle of a shopping center and then it would be someone else's turn. And it was really formalized. And then, you know, in Norway, I think once I was playing in a shopping center and the police kind of. I can't remember if they, I can't remember now if they moved me into the shopping center or out of the shopping center, but they found me a spot where they said I could play. So, you know, it was all just kind of really feeling my way through. And then as I went south in Europe, you get the kind of thing about playing outside cafe terraces and that can be quite good. But to be honest, I think I made more money in Northern Europe, in Scandinavia. I think places where buskers don't go was better.
2: Huh.
3: So you were, (laughs) you were a novelty in Northern Europe. Yeah, especially with the cello. Because that was helpful because it's just not something that people normally busk with. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So, so heavy. Especially with <laughs> the plywood case, which I have.
0: <laughs> right, right. Oh my goodness. So yeah. one of the things I found so moving about your piece was all of the kindness yeah. that you experienced as you traveled around. That seemed to really keep you afloat. Can you give some examples of that?
3: Oh, I mean, it just happened over and over again. Like, I suppose I learned that it's probably a lesson we forget and I've forgotten now, which is that if you put yourself out, out on the edge where you're out of your safety zone and you don't really have any support, then you kind of invite support. It sounds strange, Mm. but I, I certainly found over and over again, people would just kind of take me in and feed me and let me stay. And and, um, when I hurt myself, they'd look after me and I think people are basically kind and it's it's kind of good to remember because I'm not sure that our leaders are always particularly kind. But Yes, that's I, true. I yeah. think people are yeah. and that's certainly my experience on that trip, you know, like beyond, beyond just normal kindness, I kind of had life-changing kindness.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well to read about it. You should yeah. pick up Katrina's book, Fearless. And thank you so much, Katrina, for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Reggie is a senior editor with John Murray Publishing House. Welcome to the Frommer Travel Show, Kate. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I wanted to have you on because you spoke to, I believe it was the Guardian newspaper, about a very interesting trend in book publishing. And that is that because of the pandemic, we've all become armchair travelers and your company is reprinting a lot of classic travel books that have been out of print for decades. W- why do you think they're so uh, popular right now? I just said because of the pandemic. <laughs> but what about the pandemic is leading people to want to read these types of books, do you think?
4: Um, I mean, well, it's interesting because I suppose our, our jobs as um, editors and publishers is to try and um, anticipate trends. Yeah. Um, and so the, the point that we kind of decided to um, to really to celebrate John Murray's travel heritage and, and kind of classic travel writing more generally was was quite early on in the pandemic. Kind of on our hunch that um, that, you know, because in the past people have been able to 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 travel and, and to see these places, you know, because you know, travel has been democratized in the last couple of um, decades. Um, but that now suddenly we are all stuck at home you know yeah. myself, stuck in London. Um, and, and kind of desperate to to kind of want to feel like we could travel in any way. Um, and then these remarkable books of, of um, journeys from the recent past or, or the deeper past, I think, offer us a way to escape in two ways, both to kind of escape uh, wherever you might be in lockdown um, to a kind of different part of the world, but also to a different time. Um, uh, a lot of the books that we've published on this Vista um, published in the thirties, for example. Um, so, it, so it's a kind of a kind of two-part um, two travel. Yes. You know, time travel and physical travel,
0: absolutely. Yeah. And some of them will give you a better understanding of how the destinations we may know and love came to be what they're like today. In a certain way, uh, there was one by a young man who decided to walk across Europe. Yeah, can you can you tell us about that? Who was that author?
4: So this is Patrick Lee Firma, um, who you know I would recommend to um, to anyone who, who hasn't read him. He is a he is a true kind of treasure of of travel writing, and A Time of Gifts is the first book in a, a trilogy that he wrote about um, what he called his great trudge across Europe when he was only 18. Um, wow. And yeah, he's, I mean, he's described on, I think Wikipedia call him a cross between James Bond and Graham Greene and um, <laughs> uh, that uh, <laughs> someone whose name I'm forgetting now. But yeah, he's, he's this kind of amazing adventurer, but he's also just writes the most beautiful prose. And so he kind of set out um as a young man to walk across Europe with only a backpack and um uh sleep rough and sleep in, in barns and, and then kind of various chance encounters meant that he ended up staying with kind of aristocracy in, in grand um manors and, and kind of castles in in really a Europe that that was about to disappear because this was before the Second World War. Um right. and so yeah it's it's a it's just a remarkably vivid book but it, it does exactly that thing of of capturing um a place in a time that that has gone and that you know you can only really recapture through these through these books
0: so did meeting one member of the aristocracy then open the door to him to be able to stay at all of these grand manor houses or how does one just stumble upon a mer- <laughs> member of the
4: aristocracy? I think well, I mean he was he was um he was very charming and um hmm. so I think um it's been a little while since I've I've read it actually but it, right. I think it was various different encounters along the way right. that, that kind of you know yeah bumped along one to the other. And I suppose yeah just I suppose it's that that thing that happens when when you travel where sometimes just a you know a chance conversation can lead to something uh, really remarkable. And that was, that was the case. He was, um, yeah, he was quite a a remarkable guy. Yeah.
0: Well, it sounds like it. And then there's also, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, Freya Stark, uh, who I've, I've always heard about, but I've never been able to read, I guess, because some of her books now are are out of print, but she was quite the adventurous woman. Tell us a little bit about Freya Stark.
4: Yeah, I kind of I've kind of fell in love just with her just by reading her biography. She so she was uh, the child of these kind of quite bohemian parents. I think her father was a painter, um, and her mother um, was was kind of um, I think kind of English, Italian, German, and they they she she grew up in Italy. Um, and she had a little bit of a of a difficult childhood. She had a really horrible accident. When she was a teenager but that left her she, her hair got caught in some kind of machine and it left her um disfigured and and then mm. kind of the war came and, and she wasn't able to to study and it wasn't until she was in her 30s that she was able to kind of indulge her love for 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 Persian literature she she'd kind of been given a copy of a thousand and one nights uh. as a child and, and kind of was obsessed with it yeah and so she she kind of boarded a cargo ship to to Beirut as a as a You know, solo woman in the nineteen twenties. I think the late twenties, and and kind of set out. um, And she she literally walked across kind of areas of the of kind of Iran that were completely uncharted. She was literally drawing maps as, as she went along the way. So she's and she's just completely fearless. So she's yeah, she's really remarkable. And when she came back to the UK and wrote The Values of the Assassins. It became uh, an instant bestseller for for John Murray. So she's kind of one of these, yeah, one of these authors in, um, you know, John Murray is a really old publisher. So we have this kind of remarkable list of, of uh, deep backlist authors. And I how think she's definitely has, one of them. How long has John Murray been around? Well, we celebrated our 250th birthday in uh, 2018. So quite, wow. quite some time. And yeah, we've got, um, you know, we published... Back in the day, Jane Austen, Lord Byron, um, the mm. books that you might have heard of called On the Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. Um, oh, yeah. yeah some, <laughs> just that little book that didn't change anything at all. Yeah, so we've got this kind of remarkable history and, and travel is very much a central part of that. So John Murray started publishing their Murray's Handbooks in the 1830s, which were kind of, um, you know, quite pioneering in the way that they they offered kind of guides for um, I suppose people that would have been doing the the, the Grand Tour back in um, right. back in that kind of Victorian era, and and they continued to publish those through in sort of slightly different guises through into the the nineteen sixties or seventies, I think, um, and I then published that. various explorers and travellers of the kind of Victorian era um, as well. So it's always been a, a kind of key part of the the John Murray story what are What are some of the other books
0: you decided to bring back during the pandemic?
4: so So those two books are from the John Murray list, but the the other books are actually new to to John Murray. So I worked with uh, my publisher Joe Castor and one of our authors, Nick Hunt, um who recently uh, published a book called Outlandish, to kind of pull together all of these these remarkable books. and so Nick put a, a kind of call out on Twitter. Asking people to uh, to let us know if there were any travel books that they loved and that they felt should be in print or or kind of weren't published as they should have been in the past, and he had like hundreds of submissions, which you know we were he was mostly reading through and he was feeding back to us, and we had uh, great fun kind of working out what this list would be. And so we've got three additional books on the list that have never been published by John Murray before. So one is called um, A Vagabond for Beauty, which is by um, Everett Roos. Uh, a who, vagabond um, for what a, can you give a us vagabond that name again? for beauty mm. which is a, a beautiful title so everett roose is um was an american um he was uh, kind of a young artist and and wanderer um, and he he disappeared in the canyon lands of of utah when he was just 20 years old and he left behind these letters and diary excerpts and um kind of talking about how he wanted to kind of you know disappear into the wilderness and and the the kind of mystery Um, of his disappearance remains unsolved. No one knows what happened to him. And so, yeah, this was a a book that was actually left by one of Nick's neighbours on his doorstep and and he read it and and thought it was remarkable. And then the other two books, uh, there's a book called The Cruel Way by an author called Ella K. Mallart, which is the story of a journey that she took uh, with her friend. And I'm not sure how to pronounce her name properly, so apologies if I I mess this up, but it's Anne-Marie Schwarzenbach. Who is a Swiss writer, and that the two women in 1939 set out in a, a kind of Ford motor car, brand new Ford motor car, to drive from Geneva to Kabul. And the book is really it's about the drive, but it's also about their relationship. I think it, to modern readers, it's it's a queer relationship, and and mm-hmm. Anne Marie was also a, um, addicted to morphine, so a lot of it is about her trying to overcome her addiction and, and kind of the, the impact that it has on their journey. Wow, um, the, that sounds incredible. Yeah, they, they are all really remarkable books. I mean, we we really had so much fun um, discovering them and, and all so different. Um, and that the youngest of the books with an author who's still alive, um, <laughs> based in Paris, another American, Eddie, Eddie L. Harris, um, Mississippi Solo, which is, um, I think, very much still in print in the US. And it's uh, Eddie's... Uh, he uh, canoed down the Mississippi River um in the 80s um, all the way from kind of Minnesota to the Gulf of Mexico which was a kind of long-term dream of his um, and he writes about that about what it was to, to kind of paddle into the southern states um Eddie is a a black man an African-American man and you know is confronted by the legacy of slavery but also is is kind of navigating this awesome river and its power and and kind of encounters Lots of kindness and and hospitality along the way. So it's yeah, they're all they're all really um, distinct but really brilliant books in in loads of different ways.
0: Well, they sound amazing, and we are so grateful to you to, for for telling us about these books. <laughs> uh, once again, they're published by John Murray, and thank you, Kate, for appearing on the Fromward Travel Show.
4: You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Is it for this week's show? My apology for the dinging noises in the first interview. Uh, long story short, my lack of technical prowess was the problem, but I will have it fixed <laughs> by the next podcast. I, I tried desperately to fix it for this one and, and uh, just didn't work anyway. I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, Please be safe and a hearty bon voyage. See you next week.